What parents can do then is they begin looking at how do I create necessity for this child? How do I do it without throwing them out on the street or abandoning them? And it's done by, first of all, doing a kind of thorough analysis of what are all the ways that I'm enabling? What's the support that we're giving that is not being supportive? It's actually just being taken for granted and keeping him stuck. everyone, I'm Denise Gorin. Welcome to Bite Your Tongue, the podcast. Thanks for joining us as we speak with experts, authors, parents, and even young adults to explore the transition from parenting our young children to building healthy relationships with our now adults. Hopefully we'll grow together, learn about ourselves, our young adults, and of course, when to bite our tongues. We are so happy you're with us. So let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Bite Your Tongue, the podcast. I hope everyone is having a great start to 2023. I welcome the new year with another head cold, so bear with me. Also, Ellen's in Prague, and we struggled a bit in this episode with her Wi-Fi. She comes in and out of the conversation. It flows, but we think you'll notice, so we thought we'd give you a heads up. Anyway, let's get started. Today, we're talking to Dr. Mark McConville. He's a clinical psychologist and author of the book, Failure to Launch, Why Your 20-Something Hasn't Grown Up, and, of course, What to Do About It. Dr. McConville is an expert in adolescent psychology, and his groundbreaking book comes when, get this, 2.2 million young adults in America are struggling to find their way in the world. We're going to talk about the root cause of the problem, why modern young adults are failing to launch in record numbers, and the three critical skills necessary for young adults to make that transition from childhood to adulthood. So let's get started. Welcome, Dr. McConville. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to tackle this subject? Sure. So my first real job after graduate school was with a large community mental health center And they needed someone to work with teenagers because nobody really wanted to work with teenagers. I volunteered. I found that I I really enjoyed it. And that became a a staple of my practice when I went into private practice. Adolescents were about half of the work that I would do. And I began to notice somewhere around the early 2000s that I was getting more and more referrals for kids who had graduated high school, gone off to college, had failed out. And here they were at 20, 21, 22, and they were really struggling. Usually at their parents' encouragement, they would come to therapy. And what struck me was just how similar the issues were for these 20-somethings and the teenagers that I was more accustomed to working with, tangled up in their uh, family process, in conflict with their parents, not really taking ownership of their lives or accepting responsibility. And it occurred to me, after doing a lot of what seemed like good therapy that actually went nowhere, that the key was working with the parents. And so I began to include parents in the very first interview, or sometimes I would see parents initially. And then it began to get clear to me how much the parents were kind of caught up. Not It wasn't just the child that was dysfunctional. It was the whole family that was dysfunctional. They were operating 
according to what, what I think of as the underlying unspoken ground rules of adolescence, as opposed to the ground rules of having an adult child who truly behaves like an adult. So that became the focus of my work, trying to get parents to really alter their model of parenting. The delightful surprise was that kids kids got better faster. They began to resemble grown-ups sooner. It's a, it's a specialty that kind of found me. At the very beginning of your book, you do a letter to parents, and you sort of give them a little bit of, you know, it's not always just the parents. It's a little bit about the way the world is right now. And I think I like that because you don't want to completely blame yourself. It's never a one-way street. So tell us sort of what the cultures like now that parents are in that are causing this to happen more and more. 2.2 million kids not launching or struggling. Well, I think the whole business of growing up, of establishing oneself as an adult is much more complicated, much more difficult today than it was, say, when when I was growing up, when you were growing up. For one thing, the economy is different. Real wages are lower. Cost of housing is much higher. Uh, often the only affordable place to live when you're in your 20s is your old bedroom. Um, the the other thing is education. There's so much more education required to really get a foothold in the adult work world. It didn't used to be that way. When we were a strong manufacturing country, there were factory jobs that were well-paying jobs, um, people joining unions, making a living wage easily by their early 20s. And today, that just isn't the case. We're we're more of an information and service and technology oriented economy. And to do those things, you have to be you need pretty extensive training. So training means school. School means tuition. Tuition usually means mom and dad. So that sort of relationship with parents as a child to parent is perpetuated much longer than it used to be. A statistic that kind of reflects that. When, when I graduated from college, the average age for men to get married was 22, and women, it was 20. And now, most recent statistics are it's closer to 28 and 26. So the whole business of establishing yourself as an adult in the world, just it, it's been postponed. It takes a lot more time. Denise, how old were you when you got married? I was 28, I was, and I, they, I was old. My cousin didn't get married till 30. We thought she was never going to get married. And I had just turned 22. But I also think that some of those things allowed people, as you said, to launch into adulthood. It also is helpful with rent when you have two incomes and you sort of join forces as a young person. We Denise uh, had somebody else on the podcast who said that wasn't always a good thing. But um, still, it does make it harder to launch on your own when you're only when you're a, a single person, I think. You know, though, before we get into the how-tos, I really love the part of your book that you gave a message to parents. And you were saying in, in the book, there are certain things that parents should know. And I liked it because it lets parents know they're not alone. And I wondered if you could go over those points before we really get started into some of the what should we do, but more what should we know. I think the part of the book you're talking about is where uh, um, my sort of beginning with parents is say, first step is to put yourself in your kid's shoes, to try to understand with empathy what it is like and what are, what are the challenges of turning yourself from a teenager into an adult. In developmental psychology, there's a concept called developmental tasks. 
And a developmental task is what, at a certain age, you need to master in order to to move on to the next stage of life. So if you're a two-year-old, you have to master bowel control, because if you don't do that, you're not going into preschool. When you're five or six, you have to learn how to read. And if you if you don't learn how to do that, you're going to have difficulty moving forward. So every age has these challenges that that just show up on schedule. So I took a close look at the challenges that show up between the ages of, say, 17 or 18 and maybe 25. And the way I bumped into these developmental tasks is by just looking at what were the themes that emerged in my psychotherapy sessions with people in that age group? What were the things we talked about? I noticed at one point that there were certain themes that seemed to emerge over and over again with different clients. So I I kind of formalized them. The first is managing responsibilities. And that sounds so trite, but what I meant is the those kind of nuts and bolts tasks that just keep your life moving forward. You know, the renewing your driver's license, um, paying a bill on time, paying a parking ticket, phoning the doctor's office to make an appointment. These little nitty-gritty annoying tasks that when you're 18 years old, you haven't done them. Adults have done them for you. They tell you when your dentist appointment is scheduled, right? So now all of a sudden these tasks fall into your lap and it's remarkable how many kids find these tasks overwhelming in ways that seem almost mysterious. Uh, I, I, I could tell a story that really illustrates this. There was a, a kid that I'd seen as a teenager. He'd been um, sort of a very adolescent, kind of rebellious, uh, not very diligent in school, but he made it and he went off to college and he was now about 19. I hadn't seen him maybe in two and a half years. He had just gotten back in May from his college semester and he asked to come in and see me. And one of the things that emerged in the session was that his father had arranged for a summer job. He had talked to someone he knew in the business world who said, yep, have your son give me a call and we'll have him start next Monday. And this kid just would not make the call. He couldn't get himself to do it. And and he went in, it got into a typical, the parents are nagging, the kid's complaining that the parents are nagging, the kid is blaming the parents saying, I would have made the phone call if only you had stopped nagging. Sort of classic adolescent behavior. Eventually the father made the phone call and the kid started to work. And that was that. I saw him just the one time. At the end of that summer, right before he went back to college, he asked to come in and see me again. We're talking about, I I don't remember what, but during the course of our conversation, he misspoke a word. I think he he said, uh, oh, blah, 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 irregardless. Then he stopped himself and he, he said to me, is that a word? I am heartbroken to tell everybody that it is now in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, which I think is a travesty. Uh, But at the time, it was not. And I said, no, I think the word you mean is regardless. And he did. He just collapsed emotionally, put his head in his hands. He just, I I was perplexed, to say the very least. And I just waited calmly. And I said, "What, what just happened? He said, I hate when I do that. Do what? I hate when I get a word wrong when I'm talking to an adult. When I was a teenager, his word, his term was, I would just kind of jive talk my way around things. But now I try to sound grown up 
I said, oh, interesting. And then he long pause. And he said, remember that phone call that I wouldn't make back in May? I said, yeah. He said, that was it. I thought, I'm going to call this guy and he's going to say, this is just some kid, right? So it's it's at this stage when you're kind of role-playing being an adult, you're faking it. And so you have a lot of that that sort of imposter syndrome kind of thing. And so something as simple as going into a bank to open a checking account, something as simple, you know, these simple, ordinary tasks, but they take on this this aura of things that adults do. And I know I'm only 18 or 19. I secretly know that I'm faking it. I'm not really an adult. It's much more important than it appears on the surface. So that's that's the first developmental task, learning to just sort of manage the nuts and bolts of daily life. The second thing is you really need to rework a lot of your relationships. Um, you don't just need a group of buddies or a posse or whatever. You need friends that are kind of on the journey with you. You need people that you can ask the stupid question to, people that know more than you know. I, I remember my first year as a college freshman, I think I was 17, and I was so impressed with the the seniors who were in my fraternity, how worldly they seemed. And part of the culture of that group was that you asked the older kids for guidance uh, about what courses to take, what professors to look look for and to look out for, all kinds of things. But that's a skill of learning how to use relationships in a way that are supportive. And you might call them kind of early mentoring relationships. So that's crucial. And it also involves reworking your relationship with mom and dad. That's what I was going to ask. Realistically, to turn your relationship with your parents from kid to parent into adult to adult, it takes about 15 years. It starts somewhere near the end of adolescence, 16, 17, 18. And if you're lucky, you've kind of pulled it off by age 30 right, where your parents really look at you and they see an adult. So your job in these years, the the kind of early 20s, is to move in that direction. You don't renounce them as parents. You need them, but you become more self-sufficient. And part of that, this is sort of interesting, it's learning to tolerate parental disapproval, which for a lot of kids is pretty difficult to do. Not, Not in all families, but in many families, it's difficult for kids. And the thing is, if you don't learn to tolerate parental disapproval, you will never really make your own choices. I would never have become a psychologist. Psychology made no sense to my father. He he was smart enough to not make a big deal of it. But I certainly knew it didn't please him. He wasn't able to identify with it. But you have to learn to be able to do that. Or maybe your choice of partners, choice of career. I don't mean to interrupt you, but I want to ask you a question because this is really important for our listeners because I think that's a very, very important thing. How does a parent help the child make that move, give them the impression that we're disapproving or what role do we play in that, I guess I should say? Well, it's, you know, it's interesting. It starts way, way before these years. The parent who looks to see who is my child. I really want to discover my child's true identity, which is the polar opposite of, I'm going to project my personal needs and desires onto my child. I want him to be a star athlete or, a, you know, the top student. And because those meet my needs is very, very different from 
how do I find a way to support who my kid is? So maybe he's not an athlete. Maybe he's he's a Lego type kid. So I'm going to, regardless of whether that appealed to me, I'm going to try to be supportive of that kid. So it's really that dynamic starts much earlier. But now we're um, in a situation where we have a young adult that's not launching. I mean, there were situations in your book where the kid went to college and, and failed out, or the kid went to college and did fine and still was able not to find his or her place in the world. I think everything you're saying about the economy being different, the kids just choose to give up. You said earlier that sometimes the only affordable place to live is your bedroom. But when you're back in that bedroom, I know for myself, I would visit my parents at 40 and still turn into a kid when I was back in my right. childhood yeah. bedroom. So how do parents deal with that? How do they let go? How do they help them move towards these administrative skills that you say they need? Well, you know, the smallest nutshell I can offer is stop treating them like teenagers, right? Parents have this this instinct to maybe get too involved in their kids' lives. I'm thinking there's a a sociologist, uh, last name was Nance. I can't think of his first name. But what he studied was child-rearing in less developed cultures. And the theme that he said was characteristic throughout was a theme of uh, toward parents, toward children of benign neglect yeah, is the way that. he put it. Mm-hmm. The parents who I tend to work with are the opposite of benign neglect. They are so, they're over-invested. They care too much. So they have difficulty allowing their kid to fall on his face. They they get too involved in in things. You said something else that was important that sort of answers Denise's question too, and that is we don't always see the child we have. Yes. We tend to see someone else. We don't ever ask our kids what makes you happy. We project onto them what we think will make them happy. So if you're a child, I'm not speaking from personal experience, but actually I am, wants to be an <laughs> Uber driver for a while, you've got to say, cool, Why? What, you know, what is this? What, you know, why do you want to do this? As opposed to an Uber driver, let me give you 10 other careers you could do right now that will, you know, satisfy me. Whereas we we have so much difficulty. I know personally meeting a child where they are and accepting their likes and dislikes and not trying to impose our own on those. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's really letting the child be and discover who they are. I will say I run to the to the Uber driver or the um the food delivery. Now the ones that I run into that are that tend to be problematic is that the 23-year-old is living at home, did not complete college, and needs enough money for something, maybe go out to dinner with friends or to have a dating relationship. And so we'll do Uber Eats just enough during the week to supply just enough money to meet that self-indulgent budget, right? And the parents, of course, are tearing their hair out. And what I say to parents is how your kid earns money should not be your concern. Who's paying for his cell phone? Oh, well, we are. He's on the family plan. Okay. Now, you told me that he does a lot of video gaming. Uh, I assume he's using the family Wi-Fi. Well, yes. And when he goes out, who owns that car and who pays that car insurance? I see. I see. Okay. And then what would you say on a monthly basis, your grocery bill, what portion of that disappears when your kid goes away for a week or a month? 
And that's what parents can do. And that's beginning to treat your child like an adult. Like, you know, you're old enough now to have your own cell phone plan. You're you're certainly, you know, our our Wi-Fi is this much a month, and we would expect you to contribute. So that's something that parents can do. And they can do it. There's nothing punitive about it. It's like you're we are now a household of three adults or whatever. And so we want, we're gonna expect this from you. And then it's his thing to figure out, can I make enough money doing Uber Eats or do I need to get a nine to five? One thing I want to say before I ask this question is, I think a bigger problem was the kid doesn't know what they really want. You know, Ellen, when you say, okay, they want to be an Uber driver or they want to do this. We do get into the sense of that everybody's got to go to college. Everybody's got to finish college. Everybody has to have like what, you know, like it's not such a bad life in some ways. You don't, you're not doing emails at, at midnight. There are people who might just want that. They just want to yeah. work, turn off the car, and to hang out with their friends, have time to do other things. We put these values, I think, on our kids. But if somebody, if somebody's saying to me, I, I want to be an Uber driver right now, I've got to take them at their word. That is a want. And it and it's just as valuable as as to say I want to be a, a poet or a, right, a right. you know, but a dog. What, what I'm trying to say is I think some of our listeners have a kid that doesn't know what they want to do. Okay, so now they could be in your home doing Uber Eats or whatever it might be, and you start treating them like an adult, your cell phone plan. They still have a place to live, whether they're paying rent or not. I don't know. I guess you start charging rent. But they're in your home. When they don't come up with the money, do you kick them out on the street? We used to hear about tough love. Is there a time at this when you're dealing with a kid that you use tough love? You also say something about reshaping the relationship and untangling boundaries. What does that mean? I think we have to get on this episode of what parents can really do with a kid that doesn't know and is really stuck. Well, one thing that can help is perspective. The the leading authority on this stage of life, which is referred to as emerging adulthood, ages 18 to 30, is a guy named Jeffrey Arnett. He actually kind of defined this as a stage worthy of study. Jeffrey Arnett did one piece of research that I thought was fascinating. Older older adults, meaning people in their 40s and 50s, he gave them a questionnaire. And one of the items on the questionnaire was, I love what I do for a living. I can't imagine doing anything else. And in his sample, about, I think, 17%, one seven, 17% of people endorsed that. So what he did is he pulled out those individuals and interviewed them. How did you get to this, this niche that seems to feel so right for you? And what he found was that the center of the bell curve for when people discovered that particular career path was between ages 28 and 32. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So then what what happens before that? Well, he divides the emerging adulthood, that 12 year period into three sub loose substages launching, which is kind of getting your feet under you and the middle stage. It's exploring. It's trying things like working for Uber. And it's not until the late 20s that he, he, he says people land. They kind of begin to decide. They get, they've, by that time, they've learned a great deal about what they like to do, what they don't like to do. They've learned a great deal about what they're good at and what they're not good at. Those are sometimes surprises. You discover some task or skill set that you didn't even know existed, and you're terrific at it. And 
people tell you that and they're willing to pay you for it. And, and the same thing happens in relationships. By then, you've likely been in and out of several relationships. You kind of know who your people are. You know what kind of person you think you would want to settle with. So, so that's the first thing that helps is some perspective. Don't panic because your 21 or 22-year-old is doing something that doesn't look like it's going to yield a viable pension 45 years from now. Uh, the other thing I, I want to comment on, Denise, the sort of tough love, do you just kick them out? I am a firm opponent of tough love, but I think there is a kind of gentle love that can work. And I know, and I have done this with numerous families now, people that have reached out to me who, who had read the book, where instead of like, you know, you're going to, we're going to pack your bags and you're out of here. It's more like, you know, all of us living here together, it's really been difficult. It's been difficult for you. It's been difficult for your mom and me. And we think that we all might be better off if we helped you get your own place. Now we get into the weeds of particulars. You know, here in Cleveland, Ohio, there's a lot of very viable rental opportunities around the, the different universities. Um, I know in some cities it's prohibitive, but so it's a collaborative project. Let's go apartment hunting together, right? And, and so it's not done in, a, in a, as a kind of abandonment. It's done as a joint family project. And I always say to parents, and once you find that place, you take them on a pilgrimage to Ikea and you're going to furnish that apartment and buy them a, a, you know, a half refrigerator and you're going to invite them over for dinner on Monday and Wednesday or Wednesday and Sunday, whatever. And the amazing thing about that is that when parents can get their child under a separate roof, it actually increases the parent's leverage for influencing. So for example, that kid who's driving an Uber probably can't meet the rent. And so the parents might say, you know, we're going to give you a rent stipend and they can decide what that stipend will be. I always say to them, you don't want your child to be overwhelmed with financial obligation, but neither do you want it to be trivial. So you get to decide, we're going to help you this much with the rent. And then maybe after a month or two or three months, we're going to step that down. So the parents can really titrate the amount of financial pressure that that child uh, feels. And now, of course, now they're going to have their own Wi-Fi relationship with whomever. Uh, they're going to, you know, I say, and give them a tutorial on grocery shopping. I mean, there's so many more ways this way that parents can transfer adult responsibility and and manage the dosage of how much of that they're transferring. And that's something I've done a lot with families where the living situation at home really did regress. And, you know, they had that 22-year-old behaving like a 15-year-old um, and it was just didn't work for anybody. Well, that's part of what I really liked about your book. There were certain parameters you you had parents set that was hard for the parents to set, though. And that's where you talk about support versus coddling. How do you yeah. identify whether you're coddling or just supporting? So there's there's actually a pretty simple rule of thumb. Think of your child's development. If you can think of it as a line on a graph, right? You know, it's a growth curve. If that line is trending upward, then any help you give really is support, right? Oh. It's like the most obvious example is you pay college tuition. It's pretty darn expensive, but you have a faith that this is preparing them to move forward and to be prepared for adulthood. So if they're moving upward 
support. But when you see them flatlining or they're regressing and you continue to supply a ton of financial support, uh, lots of material support, then I think your support has become, it's morphed into enabling. Enabling, not because, yeah. not because you did anything different, right? I like the very simple example. If I, I see a young mother with three little kids in torn winter coats outside of the supermarket and and I reach in my wallet and I hand her two $20 bills and, you know, I'm I'm going in the store kind of pat myself on the back and then I see her over at the um, where they sell the wine and the beer. I'm like, oh, how could you know? How could I be so stupid? But if I see her loading up a cart with with groceries and baby formula and whatever, I'm thinking, well, I was well. My act was the same. It's what she did that determined whether it was support or whether it was enabling. And that's the, where parents find themselves. Nobody sets out to enable their kid. They set out to support them. And then if the kid just kind of heads south, the parent finds himself in a bind. I call it an, the enabling trap. You know? And what do you do if you're in that enabling trap? How do you get out of it then when you've already started to provide this kind of support, yeah. hoping they were growing, and all of a sudden you see everything going downhill? Well, that's, you know, you start by kind of looking at what you're doing and understanding it as enabling and then asking questions. What could I shift over to my child? where it wouldn't be overwhelming. And of course, the simplest, we always start with the cell phone. You know, any 20-something feels they can't survive without a cell phone. It's a modest expense, but it's, it's, it's almost a paradigm shift of saying there are things you need to be responsible for now. Because if he doesn't pay that cell phone bill, what happens is the cell phone is turned off. That's how you grow up. I like to say anybody who knows how to change a tire on a car probably didn't open the manual one day and say, I think I'm going to go teach myself how to change a tire. More likely, they found themselves with a flat tire by the side of the road, and then they rose to the challenge and they figured out how to do it. And that's how a lot of this growing up happens. Parents, what parents can do then is they begin looking at how do I create necessity for this child? How do I do it? without throwing them out on the street or abandoning them. And it's done by looking, first of all, doing a kind of thorough analysis of what are all the ways that I'm enabling? What's the support that we're giving that is not being supportive? It's actually just being taken for granted and keeping him stuck. Oh, gosh, I tell you, all of this makes me take a deep breath and think, here we are in our 60s. Our kid is maybe 28, 30, and we're still working so hard balancing so much, parenting. Are you enabling? Are you supporting? How to handle it? Do you have any advice to encourage parents that might help them through this situation? Well, when I first meet with parents who are caught in this situation, often caught in what I've called the enabling trap, the first thing to do is to to do this sort of reflective analysis of all the support that they're offering, the financial support, the material support, the family car, the uh, the old bedroom, and to ask in each case, is this in fact a support? Is it helping this kid to move forward? Is it is it giving them a platform from which to launch, or has it turned into the enabling trap, where the child now just takes that support for granted? Mom and dad's home has become a country club, 
and they are enjoying the luxuries thereof, and they feel no compulsion to try to find their own own way in life. So the first bit of work is to do that kind of reflective analysis. How is our support operating? Is it operating, in fact, to propel our kid forward? Or in some way, is it actually holding him back? That's still work on the parents' part. Mm-hmm. I guess it is work, and I guess they have to do it. But I wonder, is there anything we could say, take a break for a minute? I, I don't know. I just think we've been parenting our whole lives, and we hoped by the time they were 21, 22, we'd be done. And now you're really facing what's probably the toughest part. And I know as a mom, it is so hard to pull back support. Yeah. You want to give and give and give. You're right. And that, so the paradox is that the real work at this stage if you have a child who is struggling to launch, is doing less rather than more. Interesting, yeah. It's find that much more difficult. When a parent presents me with the dilemma, uh, the, the woman whose sons refused, her, her son refused to pay his speeding tickets, and she was desperate because he was refusing to go to court. She said, what do I do? And I said, why do anything? You know, this is a learning process. Nobody goes to the penitentiary for not paying speeding tickets. It will be a real life, nuts and bolts learning experience. And so the answer is do nothing. She could not do nothing. The kid was in bed screaming at her, leave me alone. She went down to the local municipal court and paid the tickets. I understand that. I'm a softie. But as a parenting, it it definitely wasn't helpful. So less is very often more. You know, it's funny. It makes me think of bite your tongue. It's very hard to bite your tongue. Right. It's very hard to do less. It's it's very, very similar. Mm-hmm. I want to circle back to the earlier conversation we had, the story you told about the young man and the job. His dad had set up this job and he couldn't make the call. There's two parts of this that I have been thinking about through this conversation. One is, was it really appropriate for that father to set up the job for the kid? Now, it could be that the kid talked to the father and said, could you make that initial call to Joe for me? And and that's probably okay. The second part, though, you said the father made the call for the son because the son couldn't do it. And I felt like that was a step towards failure to launch, because really, maybe the kid had to learn that if he didn't make the call, there's no job. Now, the father was probably more worried because just as a mother, this job was a stepping stone for this kid to a career, resume builder, all of that sort of thing. What is a better way for the parent to have handled this situation? Well, the first thing is really you always start by looking at the larger picture of this child's developmental progress. So, for example, if you had a kid who was an industrious student and he had some career goals, and but he had some social anxiety about making this call, I I just would not consider it that big a deal if the parent made the call for him, because this is a kid we know is moving upward. Now, if you have a kid who's really struggling, then it's not such a good idea. But to answer your question at a concrete level, let me give you another vignette uh, that happened right here in my office, not this summer, but the summer before. A young man that I had seen as a teenager, 15, 16, he reached out to me by email and said he was like 19, maybe 20, college student, home for the summer, had a job. And he just wanted to come in and kind of vent because his mom was driving him crazy. That's where his words. It turned out, this is quite by happenstance, that his mother was in the waiting room because it was a, a they had a car repair issue. And so they had to share the car. So, and I, I said to him, 
took me a little bit of uh, convincing, but I said, how about if I bring your mom in? He reluctantly agreed, and mom came in. We welcomed her, and I asked if the two of them had anything they needed to deal with, and they were off to the races. And the issue was he had a dentist appointment that had to be rescheduled because it had a conflict with his work schedule. And the mom, quite appropriately for a 19 or 20-year-old, wanted him to make the call. He wouldn't make the call, and he was just angry with her for hassling him and not doing it for him. So I, I watched this with fascination for three or four minutes, this peculiar debate. And then I, I interrupted and I asked him, I said, I'll, I'll call him Joe. I said, Joe, what do you think happens when somebody calls a dentist office to reschedule an appointment? He stops for a minute. He says, they probably get pissed. Now, anyone who knows anything about healthcare knows that dental offices have more no-shows than any other healthcare provider. If you call their office to reschedule an appointment, they want to send you flowers, right? True. So he had this sort of classic, logical, but incorrect misunderstanding. So I turned to mom and I said, mom, would you be willing to call the dentist office uh, on speakerphone and to reschedule the appointment? And she says, okay. And she calls and they Oh, oh, hello, Mrs. Jones. Well, no problem. Of course. Thank you so much for calling. How would next Friday afternoon be? So you know how the call goes. Right. Right. She gets off the phone and I turn and I look at Joe and I did this thing that my mother used to do to me with great effect. I looked over the top of my glasses. I didn't say a word. And Joe goes, oh, it's such a rich vignette. He didn't know this little bit of how the world works. And that generated the anxiety. In this case, mom provide a live action tutorial, which I think is wholly appropriate, right? Here, let's let's do it together. Let me show you how, it, how it's done. When you see something like that done, you know, if you have any wits about you at all, at that age, you go, oh, easy as pie. So that's a much better, much better approach. Yeah, and that's interesting because and even from the mother's point of view, maybe rather than the nagging, what concerns you about making the call? What do you think is going to happen? Maybe asking that question, although maybe the kid wouldn't answer to the mother. <laughs> That's a therapist question. I guess it is. I have occasionally, but rarely had a 20-something say, well, I know I should be able to do it, but I'm just too embarrassed and awkward, and I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. When, when a kid comes out in my office and says that, I consider them to be a poet. You know, they're speaking for their whole generation. Interesting. I think with a really smart kid that didn't want to make this call, would use that technique for the next seven calls. Joe, you need to call the school to say you're going to be late today. Can you show me how that's done, mom? You know, <laughs> exactly. But then the mother will catch on. I just have a couple more things here. I want to talk about a suggestion for parents to stay connected when things are tough. All the snaggings going on, the kids angry. You say in your book, and I'm going to read the paragraph, this book is about when common sense parenting no longer seems to work, when our children reach the age when our leverage and influence have diminished, and when our children are really old enough to make their own life decisions, and they fail to take over the duties of parenting themselves toward adulthood. You go on to say that there's a secret ingredient, a lubricant that makes learning and maturation turn the right direction. 
Every parent listening wants to know what that lubricant is and which drug source sells it. So <laughs> can you sort of answer that question for us? Sure. The kind of parents who present these concerns, whether in person or through reading a book, they are inevitably parents that deeply love their kids. You know, there's a fair percentage of negligent or underinvested parents. These are not them. This is why they're so distressed, because they care so much about this kid making it. But often what has happened in the give and take, the back and forth, is a kind of friction has developed, a kind of antagonism and animosity. And while the kid will say things, oh, my God, I can't stand my mother. And the mother will say, I just want to wring his neck. And that's become the tenor of their relationship. And one of the things that really makes a difference if you've got a kid who's struggling is you sit back and try to remember the big picture. This is my child. I adore this child. And no matter what happens to them, I will always love them. Now, when the rubber hits the road, when that becomes something real, uh, the example I gave in the book of the mother with the unrepentant heroin addict, and and she finally, after trying to fix her heroin addiction for, for years, finally resolves, I can't do that. But what I can do is have breakfast with her once a week. And that breakfast becomes, you know, girl talk. How are you doing? How's Uncle Joe? And, and that creates the bond. When a, a kid who's struggling, he's lost his third job, he flunked out of school, he's driving his parents nuts, and he comes in, and in the context of a session, he says something to me like, my mom and I are watching Game of Thrones. We've carved out this corner of collaboration, of shared interest, where in that action, we know we're connected. We know we love each other. I had one dad. This is, to me, just a deeply touching story. His son, who was late 20s by this time, diagnosed paranoid schizophrenic, had become homeless here in our Cleveland area, refused all psychiatric treatment. And the dad learned where his his spots were, that occasionally he would spend the night and get a meal, but he often would sleep in a kind of a camp under one of the bridges. And what the dad would do maybe twice a month is go buy a pack of cigarettes and go down into the homeless world. And he, his son had some sort of nickname. He would find him and he would give him the carton of cigarettes. And what that elicited was, thanks, dad. Right. It, there just was so little available. And the dad settled for what was available. Now, most of us aren't in that dire circumstance, but while our kids are making us tear our hair out and we're frustrated that they won't take the obvious constructive move, we have to remember that your child, son or daughter, having that unquestioned experience, I know my mom loves me. Oh, she hassles me, but I know she loves me. Mm -hmm. I know my dad loves me. Mm -hmm. If they carry that sort of burning ember around with them, no matter what they're up against, the odds that they will make it right increase. It's not a sure thing, but the odds get better. So even if you're nagging during the day and trying to get them to motivate themselves, you can still curl up at the couch at night and watch Game of Thrones together. Yep, absolutely. Right. That that makes perfect sense. Yeah. As I think about our interview, so much of it really focused on advice directed towards affluent families. And I'm sure some of that's true because those are many of the people that you see that could afford to see a therapist. 
But there are many families that may not be able to help their kid get an apartment, put a down payment on it, or help furnish it. Any thoughts, steps for those families to help their kid make that transition? Yeah, there really is a massive paradox when it comes to affluence. I sometimes, I talk to my wife about the people I consult with, and I say, you know, I have not yet been contacted by a truck driver married to a waitress. I have not been contacted by a solidly blue-collar family. And and one of the reasons is they don't have the resources to be overindulgent. So it's benign neglect? It It is a kind of benign ne- neglect. In a nice, a good way. I mean, we were saying benign yeah. neglect can be a really good thing. Yes. I had a family that I saw for years off and on, and they had a daughter in their mid-30s, brilliant, but but deeply underachieving, living at home, mom and dad doing about half of her financial support. And what had happened was the dad had to retire. And the mom, because of medical reasons, she was a teacher, she had to retire. So they had two retirements on top of each other. They couldn't afford their sort of solidly upper middle class home. And they had to sell it and move into a, a, a condo that was much more modest. And it did not have an extra bedroom. Right. <laughs> now, the story is that within three months, their daughter was doing much better. Interesting. Much more resourceful, much more, you know, more hours at work, just doing things in a more capable. So families that have less resource often find it easier to say, we can't help you with that or we, we can't fund that. You want to go back to college? Great idea. We're all for it. You're going to have to save up some money and put a down payment on your tuition. Maybe we can help you a little bit, but you can't count on us to be the bank. And so that is one of the problems for so many of the more child-centered, more affluent families, is they care so deeply and they can afford to provide many of these supports. That makes me think of my father's generation and immigrants who had so little and worked so hard. It's that need. And the more we have, the less need. And need makes you work harder. If you have a warm bed and a meal and all that, you may just relax. So, you know, that makes sense. I thought about that a lot in my life. All right. So before we ask for your final takeaways, share some of what you write in your last chapter. You write a letter to the Dear 20-something. You sort of take your book, you go through some of the steps, but targeting, talking to a 20-something. And I think I'd like our listeners to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, first of all, I try to speak as much as I can to their language. I spent decades in this room with 14, 15, 16, and 17-year-olds, which prepared me well for talking to 20-somethings who are behaving like 14, 15, 16, and 17-year-olds. So I, I start with a kind of a disarming. I say, look, someone just handed you this letter to read. Maybe your parents, I don't know. Uh, but I'll, t- I'll tell you this, when someone hands me something to read, I give them a polite nod and uh, I may glance at page one and then it goes pretty promptly in the trash. So I completely get it if that's what you do with this letter. But I want to make a bargain. Give me three pages. Just give me three pages. And if I haven't grabbed your attention by three pages, please be my guest. Throw it in the trash. No harm, no foul, no hard feelings. So I do my best in that three pages to grab their attention, describing what I suspect it's like for many of them. Having parents that are on their back, being annoyed by it, feeling like the options available 
aren't very great and maybe they're getting blamed for it. And then I get around to, and you know, chances are you you you're inclined to get down on yourself at times. So I have some ideas about what you might where you might put your energy. And then I I roll through the three developmental tasks, managing nuts and bolts, the kind of boring responsibilities of life, learning how to find your Obi-Wan Kenobi, that that mentor who is gonna help you. And I point out every every hero in, in literature, you know. Harry Potter had Hagrid. Luke Skywalker had Obi-Wan Kenobi. Uh, Frodo had Gandalf. You know, I, I said, dude, look, it's it's not a weakness. It's it's how we get by in life, finding people that know more than we do. And then I, one of the things I address is so many young people think, here I am, let's say, 19, 20, 21, and I don't know what I want to do with my life. And that makes me feel somehow like I'm way behind the race. So I do pluck out a little bit of research that I present gently that says, you know, the people that have studied this about when people find their path, turns out it's not until late 20s, early 30s. So you got some time to explore. And um, the image I, I give to them is, look, you may be thinking that the path into the future is like a highway and you just got to head right down the middle of it. But that's not it at all. The path to your future is more of a climbing wall. You got to find a, a handhold, a foothold, you know, don't fall mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. Only when you get the first one, do you look for the second one. Then you reach a little and you look for where to put your foot. Take it up piece by piece by piece. And if you talk to someone in their 30s who has found their way, that is what they will describe. They had no idea where they were going. They had no idea. They took it step by step each time trying to improve things a little bit. And eventually they find themselves at the top of the wall with this sort of horizon in front of them and lots of invitation and opportunity. I think that is really wonderful. And that's true. And although I'm not sure any of us ever completely reached the horizon, when we hit our 60s, we're climbing that wall again in a different way. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I want you to provide our listeners then with two takeaways that, or three, whatever you feel comfortable with that you hope they take away. You're talking to parents whose kids are not launching. What are two or three things you would say to them? The, the nutshell message of the book is you've got this kid. You're terribly frustrated with him or her, what they're doing or not doing. You're so invested in what you want to see them do differently. You need to stop, let go of that, and look in the mirror and say, what do I need to be doing differently? So the book is intended to promote and support and encourage a reflective posture. How is my parenting, how is it inadvertently, despite my best intentions, how has it become part of the problem? Because the good news about being part of the problem is that if you are part of the problem, you can actually do something about that. You're not as helpless as you may have believed. That's really the first task. The second take, I would say, is something I mentioned before. Less is more. Learning to do less for your kid. Being able to say, you know, he or she could very well do that for themselves. And the encouragement they need from me may be coaching or cheerleading, but they don't necessarily need a dollar bill to do that. And finally, don't give up. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't know. There's as much as I've talked to kids all my life, I've talked to their parents and I never have ever failed to say to parents. So how did you get through this? Mm -hmm. You've got a struggling 24 year old. What were you like at 24? And I have heard more 
incredibly interesting stories. Interesting in retrospect, because I'm talking to the CEO of a local manufacturing company who tells me how he failed out of Kent State and then did two years in the Army. And then he came back and enrolled in the University of Cincinnati. And then he got into the Wharton, you know, MBA program. And then, yeah. you know, and I hear these, these journeys that are every bit of the rival of Luke Skywalker or Frodo Baggins. And, and uh, those stories are, they're all around us. So I say, don't give up hope. Your own path was not a streamlined. Very true. Well, I just want to say there's so much in your book that we can't cover today. And I really hope parents listening that have children that aren't launching or struggling will pick up a copy and get further in depth about their role in parenting, enabling versus supporting. And really, I think you have such concrete messages how to help your child get on their own two feet. Your book really has so much to offer. And I should ask, do you ever do virtual consulting? If a a listener was interested in contacting you, can they do that? Yeah, this was kind of a surprise for me. But once the book was released, I began to hear from people from really around the country, several other countries. I initially was disappointed because I'm not allowed to do psychotherapy across state lines. So Mm. I turned people down and then had the brilliant idea of calling the head of the Ohio Psych Board. And he said to me, well, that's not therapy. That's called consulting. You wrote a book. You're allowed to consult about anything anywhere. So I have, in fact, uh, every week I will see two, three, four people. I usually do 75-minute consultations, sometimes a follow-up or two, depending on the situation, but uh, really trying to help get a handle on the problem and formulate some kind of a parenting strategy sometimes trying to help people find resources in their own area right. that they can rely on on a more ongoing basis. But yeah, I welcome that and I do that all the time. Well, that's great to know. Well, I really thank you so much for joining us. And I know we had so many technical issues at the beginning and I'm sorry, Ellen fell off and she's in Prague and couldn't be- get back on, but this has been terrific. And, you know, me being from Ohio and Youngstown, your, your neighboring town, um, it's been great to chat with you. So we really appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real honor to spend time with the two of you. Great. Thanks, Mark. So that's a wrap. We've had so many listeners write to us asking that we cover this failure to launch phenomenon. And we hope this answers many of your questions. I think what I heard today is the key is to do less, change our parenting techniques, remembering that they are adults now. And it's certainly very hard when we love them so much. Benign neglect, I always try to remember that. Thank you again so much, Mark. And if anyone is interested in talking to Dr. McConville, you can check out his website at markmcconvillephd.com. And once again, thank you to Connie Fisher, our audio engineer. She really takes our cut-up recordings and makes them magic. And again, I can't end without asking you to follow us on social media, send us your ideas, and check out our website on ways to support our work. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, remember, sometimes you may have to just bite your tongue.